Mark, this is Democracy Now! We have in our lifetime, from Iraq to that last 20 years in Afghanistan, fought wars that everybody, right, left, everybody gets now, were spectacular moral as well as military failures for no other reason than that anything else would have cut into those $6.5 trillion profits of the defense industry. It's primary day in New Hampshire. As Donald Trump and Nikki Haley square off in the Republican race, we'll speak to Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson about her long-shot campaign against President Biden. She's calling for a Department of Peace. In an unusual twist, Williamson's name is on today's New Hampshire ballot, but Biden's is not. Biden opted out of running in New Hampshire after the state refused to move its primary until after South Carolina's. We'll also speak to the acclaimed Chinese artist Ai Weiwei, who recently had an exhibition in London canceled after he publicly criticized Israel's assault on Gaza. But first, we go to a tent facility built at a former airport in New York where 2,000 migrants had to face sub-freezing temperatures this weekend. We're in this tent where we don't have a bed, but at least we have cots to sleep. If not, we'd be sleeping in the street. We don't have a way to wash our clothes. The food is not great, but at least it's a warm meal. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's reportedly proposed halting its assault on Gaza for two months in exchange for the release of more than 100 hostages remaining in Gaza. According to Axios, the proposed deal would also involve the release of Palestinians imprisoned by Israel, but it would not end the war in Gaza. Axios reports Israel's given the proposal to Hamas through mediators from Qatar and Egypt. Separately, CNN reports Israel proposed proposed allowing top Hamas officials to leave Gaza as part of a broader ceasefire negotiation. President Biden's Middle East coordinator, Brett McGurk, is in Egypt and will soon head to Qatar. This comes as Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu faces increasing political pressure to bring home the hostages. Earlier today, Israel announced 24 of its soldiers were killed in Gaza on Monday, in the deadliest day for Israeli forces since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, bringing the number of Israeli soldiers soldier casualties to over 200. Meanwhile, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza continues to worsen. The United Nations is warning 570,000 Palestinians face catastrophic hunger. Health officials in Gaza say 195 Palestinians were killed in Israeli strikes over the past 24 hours. Israeli forces have reportedly surrounded the city of Khan Yunis while attacking areas where thousands of Palestinians have sought shelter, including at Al-Aqsa University. This is a Palestinian child who fled the school with his family. We hardly made it out of the university under the shelling. We didn't expect the tanks at the university's gates. We hardly made it out. Every day I see children die. Every day children die. Many of my friends died last night at Al-Aqsa University. According to the Gaza Health Ministry, over 25,000 Palestinians have died in Gaza, more than 10,000 of them children. 
In other news from the region, the 18-year-old Israeli war resistor Tal Mitnick has been sentenced to an additional 30 days in military prison. Visit democracynow.org to see our interview with Mitnick last week. He's the first Israeli resistor in the Gaza assault. The U.S. and U.K. launched fresh strikes on eight Houthi targets in Yemen Monday. It's the second time the two countries conducted a joint attack and the eighth strike by U.S. forces against the Iran-backed Houthi movement in Yemen over the past two weeks in retaliation for Houthi forces targeting ships in the Gulf of Aden and Red Sea to protest Israel's war on Gaza. Massive protests have filled the streets of Yemen since the foreign attack started and after the U.S. recently redesignated the Houthi movement as a terrorist group. This is journalist and we say to the United States that this classification will not cause the Yemeni people any fears regarding their support of Gaza. This classification is an evasion and cover-up by the United States and Israel for the crimes they committed against the Palestinian people. Here in the United States, the Service Employees International Union, SEIU, has become the largest U.S. union to call for an immediate Gaza ceasefire. Union President Mary Kay Henry said, quote, SEIU's almost two million members believe that wherever violence, fear and hatred thrive, working people cannot, she said, adding Israel must also, quote, end decades of occupation, blockades and lack of freedom endured by the Palestinian people. The U.S. Supreme Court has declined to hear a case brought against the organization U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. The decision upholds lower court rulings that rejected baseless claims the Palestinian Advocacy Group provides material support for terrorism. The Center for Constitutional Rights, which represents the group, welcomed the Supreme Court move and said, quote, as the government of Israel is carrying out an unfolding genocide against Palestinians in Gaza, it's more important than ever that activists be free to speak out without fear. CCR said. In more Supreme Court news, justices agreed Monday to hear an appeal from Oklahoma death row prisoner Richard Glossop. He's maintained his innocence for over a quarter of a century after being convicted as the mastermind behind the 1997 murder for hire of his former employer, the owner of a motel Glossop managed. He's narrowly escaped execution three times. Oklahoma's Republican Attorney General Gentner Drummond has said Glossop's conviction should be vacated due to an unfair trial. In immigration news, the Supreme Court sided with the Biden administration, allowing Border Patrol agents to cut down razor wire put up by Texas troopers along its border with Mexico. Texas Governor Greg Abbott had previously ignored the orders to remove the wire, asserting state authority over the border area. New Hampshire voters are casting ballots today in the first primary of the 2024 presidential election. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley appeared at a flurry of campaign events Monday in what analysts say could be a final attempt to shore up her campaign against frontrunner Donald Trump. On the Democratic side, President Biden will not be on the primary ballot after state Democrats went ahead with January primaries, despite the DNC switching up the voting calendar to prevent Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, for two of the whitest states in the country, from being the first to hold their primaries and caucuses. A writing campaign for Biden still seeks to deliver the president to victory in New Hampshire. Meanwhile, organizers are urging Democrats to instead write in their vote as ceasefire to send a message to Biden over support for Israel's assault on Gaza. One presidential candidate who is on New Hampshire's Democratic ticket is author and activist Marion Williamson. She'll be joining us to discuss her campaign later in the broadcast. 
The Biden administration announced new measures to strengthen access to reproductive care on the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade Monday. These include making contraception more accessible and free under the Affordable Care Act and ensuring hospitals provide emergency abortions nationwide. Both President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris gave addresses Monday excoriating Republicans for their continued attack on abortion rights as Democrats seek to harness persistent voter rage over the Supreme Court's undoing of Roe v. Wade in 2022. This is Vice President Harris speaking from the battleground state of Wisconsin as she kicked off a national tour on abortion rights. In the last 19 months, in states across our nation, extremists have proposed and passed laws that criminalize doctors and punish women. Today in America, one in three women of reproductive age live in a state with an abortion ban. One in three. In France, tens of thousands of people took to the streets and cities across the country on Sunday, urging President Emmanuel Macron to reject a hardline immigration bill. The measure strengthens deportation authority, makes it more difficult for non-citizens to access social welfare and other benefits. The legislation has been widely condemned as anti-immigrant amidst fears of a turn to the far right. This is a migrant worker from Mali at the rally in Paris. Myself, for example, I work. I don't have social security or anything at all, even though I pay taxes. This is really difficult. When we work, we can be maltreated because we're afraid to lose the jobs that we have. And then when we work, the overtime hours that we do can go unpaid and we can't complain. You complain, you get fired. In Illinois, at least eight people were found fatally shot at three separate locations in the city of Joliet Sunday and Monday. The suspected gunman fled to Texas, where police said he shot himself after a confrontation with law enforcement Monday evening. One of the victims was a 28-year-old Nigerian immigrant who'd been living in the U.S. for about three years. There's been at least two dozen mass shootings in the U.S. just in the first three weeks of this year, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Dexter Scott King, the youngest son of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King, has died of prostate, can of prostate cancer at 62. He served as chair of the King Center, where he dedicated his life's work to preserving and sharing the legacy of his parents, inspiring young people to continue working toward justice and equality. And in California, faculty at Cal State University, the country's largest public university system, are returning to the classroom today as they reach a tentative agreement late Monday after just a one-day strike. The deal grants pay raises and extended parental leave, among other things. The California Faculty Association Union celebrated the deal, posting on social media, quote, in case anyone forgot, strikes work. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. 
As nine Democratic governors, led by New York's Governor Kathy Hochul, have joined together to call on President Biden and Congress to address the humanitarian crisis faced by migrants, we begin today's show in New York City, looking at the conditions endured by tens of thousands of asylum seekers who've arrived here over the last year, many on buses from Texas, as part of Republican Governor Greg Abbott's anti-immigrant efforts. On Sunday, a three-month-old girl staying in a migrant shelter with her family in Queens, died after suffering a heart attack. This comes amidst an ongoing housing crisis for migrants and asylum seekers in the city that's left many scrambling for a safe place to live after New York City Mayor Eric Adams imposed a 60-day limit for families to stay in shelters, 30 days for single men. Around 2,000 migrant men, women, and children staying in a remote tent facility built at a former airport called Floyd Bennett Field have faced below freezing temperatures for days. Democracy Now! went there Saturday and spoke to Fabiola Mendieta Cuapio, a Brooklyn resident immigrant justice activist organizing essential needs and resources. The conditions inside are not are not the best conditions for families. Um, you know, we've been receiving um, complaints about people getting sick because it's cold. Um, they put the heat. They have heat inside. Um, but still, you know, it's just in the area. Is The area is cold, isolated. I feel like one of the biggest needs right now um, is not just um, clothes and, and food. You know, sometimes people just need to get access or information about the school district, where to go, uh, if they need um, medical insurance. Um, I know the city um, has been working with some families, but also um, I think language access is a huge need inside. Uh, we find out that a lot of the families don't get served because they don't speak Spanish. People assume that because they look like me, they speak Spanish. It's not the case. We also have a lot of indigenous families um, inside these tents. We have families from around the world who speak other, you know, other languages. Uh, and I think the language barrier prevents for these families to get the services they need. Um, another big ask that they have is mental health services. You know, uh, people are really traumatized. That was immigrant justice activist Fabiola Mendieta Cuapio speaking with Democracy Now!'s Tammy Warnoff. Democracy Now! producer Maria Tarasena spoke to an asylum seeker and single mother from Ecuador who's been staying at the Floyd Bennett Field tent camp with her two young daughters since late December. She said her partner had died as they crossed the treacherous Darien jungle between Colombia and Panama en route to the United States. And she said she fled Ecuador after receiving threats from a gang and surviving years of domestic violence. She asked, we hide her identity for safety. I left Ecuador on August 4th. It took me five months to get here. On my journey to the United States, I was robbed. I was even left without shoes. In Mexico, my six-year-old daughter was almost kidnapped. I'm grateful to the people who helped me get my daughter back. I didn't have any money to eat. I slept in the streets with my daughters in the cold.
Now I'm here in New York with my two daughters. They're both going to school. I haven't been able to look for work because it's very difficult to go drop them off at school and then come back all the way here and then go back out again to pick them up. It takes me all day. I need help to go out and look for a job so that I can start having some stability with my daughters and move on. I am alone here. I don't know anyone. I've worked very hard ever since I was a little girl. People who know me would tell me that I am very hardworking, that I am a fighter who has always taken care of her children. One of my daughters is six, and the other is 11 years old. I had to take one of them to the hospital recently because she was burning with fever. I got really scared. Could you please share or describe what the conditions are inside this tent facility? How long have you been here for? And could you describe just how isolated it is? It's about 20 degrees. It's freezing today. What is it like to be sleeping and, and to, to be inside the facility? La verdad, aquí, como digo... To be honest, I don't think I can complain. We're in this tent where we don't have a bed, but at least we have cots to sleep. If not, we'd be sleeping in the street. We don't have a way to wash our clothes. The food is not great, but at least it's a warm meal. Democracy Now! producer Maria Inez Tarasena speaking with an asylum seeker and mother from Ecuador. She said after arriving in New York, she asked the father of one of her daughters to please send her money for school supplies and other urgent needs, but was scammed. She was scammed by a woman uh, she thought was willing to help her. Because I don't have a phone number in the United States or a passport, this woman told me to use her information so that my daughter's father could send the money. She withdrew the money, and I begged her to please bring it to me, but she never did. She described, as she cried, enduring years of domestic violence from her father and several partners in Ecuador, and spoke about her first husband and the father of her older children, who are still in Ecuador. El papá me pegaba, me the father of one of my children beat me. He'd humiliate me and force me to sleep outside in the cold. Before I left him, he tried to stab me and said he'd kill me. I was just 12 years old when I was given to him, and he was 23 years old. I suffered a lot. I barely even grew up with my mom and dad. My father was also very evil towards me. I've asked for help here and asked to be able to speak to a psychologist because the truth is that sometimes I've wanted to die. For more on the humanitarian crisis endured by asylum seekers in New York and Chicago, we're joined by two guests. In Albany, New York, Murata Walda is with us, executive director of the New York Immigration Coalition and NYIC Action. 
His Albany Times Union op-ed is headlined, An Opportunity for New York to Lead on Immigration Policy. And in Chicago, Oscar Chacon is executive director of Alianza Americas, an immigrant rights group addressing the arrival of thousands of migrants to Chicago as well. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! We're going to begin with Murad in the capital of New York State, uh, in Albany. Um, can you talk about what we just saw, these conversations, what's happening out, not only in Queens, but the death of the three-month-old, uh, what's happening to uh, asylum seekers here and what you feel needs to be done? Well, thank you for having me on your show today. It's a pleasure always to be in your company. Um, it's incredibly unfortunate that we continue to find ourselves in this kind of emergent rapid response moment when we've been welcoming folks, not just for the past 18 months, but as a city of immigrants, a state of immigrants, a state that's been built um, by every wave of immigration. Um, our, our state and our city has been unprepared and continue to stay in this uh, rapid response moment instead of actually putting together plans to actually integrate people better. Uh, that's why we're here in Albany today. We're fighting for our state legislative um, platform, which is to really invest in immigration legal services, expanding housing voucher access, as well as language justice. Um, what's happening in New York City with uh, Mayor Eric Adams is not... Um, the ramifications of a migrant crisis. I don't think we have a migrant crisis. I think we have a crisis of leadership in this moment. And every instance of action that this mayor has taken over the past 18 months has not been something that is based in compassion and humanity, as we've been known uh, in New York City to do, um, but more so as building more barriers and actually making it harder uh, for people to become self-sufficient. The more we support people, the better they are able to stand up on their own without having to be pushed out and evicted from shelters and having to be reintaked. Um, even before they put their 30 and 60 day rule in place, what we were seeing is that a good majority of singles were getting out within 30 to 45 days. Um, and this is just putting another burden and another bureaucratic hurdle in their way to actually standing up on their own feet. And we've been dealing with an affordability crisis, not just in New York, but across this country for years. And we are not seeing any action being taken on that um, from the federal level, nor our state, nor our city. So this is an opportunity for every level of government to step up and lead and also lead in the arena that they can have power over. Uh, Murad, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that the, you don't believe that there is a, a, a crisis uh, with the arrival of these uh, asylum seekers. Most people are not aware that New York City, in the two years after the pandemic started, lost five, nearly 500,000 residents uh, who left the city. Uh, so you would think that uh, all those people leaving means there are empty apartments, there are empty office buildings. Why has it been so hard for the city to find uh, housing uh, for these asylum seekers? You know, that's a great question. And we actually lost over 400,000 people uh, since the pandemic. Um, we've had a huge amount of people leaving the state uh, and specifically working class people leaving the state of New York um, because of the affordability crisis. Uh, we have apartments that are being hoarded. We have over 40,000 apartments that are rent stabilized being hoarded. We have several thousand city owned apartments that are uh, owned and operated by the HPD 
We have NYCHA, which are public housing units that are available. So this is not uh, an issue of is there availability? Yeah, we should always be building more affordable housing. But in this moment, we have enough housing to house everyone who's currently living in our homeless shelters, as well as our who, those who need supportive housing. We have an enormous amount of supportive housing that's available. This is an administration that continues to fumble the ball and continues to fail at actually leading. You know, they've put in measures that actually don't help anyone in the city of New York, such as hiring freezes. Now we're seeing the mayor blame and scapegoat migrants and immigrants and saying that he has to make these massive budget cuts when we know that he actually stored an enormous amount of surplus money in the rainy day fund and the reserves within the city. And just recently, you know, through our advocacy and our efforts, the governor just announced that she's dedicating over $2.4 billion to the city. And yet he continues to push his austerity measures. This is someone who came in with an austere lens and continues to push that to this day, even with receiving the resources he needs to ensure that there are no cuts. He continues to champion cutting more social services, essential services, and pretty much harming uh, New Yorkers in the way in which we have been living in New York. And this is our golden opportunity. We have a huge population coming in like they always do every year. Um, and we need this population. We need the workforce and we need to continue to building our city and our state. And that has only been done by um, every wave of immigration over the past uh, two centuries here. I'd like to bring Oscar Chacon in from Alianza Americas. Uh, Oscar, uh, Chicago has uh, received uh, uh, about 34,000 asylum seekers in the city from buses and planes sent by Texas in the last uh, year and a half. Uh, There are lots of reports that many employers in the Chicago area are actually uh, creating more divisions, even among the undocumented community, by hiring Venezuelans off the books and getting rid of uh, Mexican and Guatemalan other undocumented workers. Could you talk about that process, how that's affected the communities uh, involved? Well, I think it's important to understand that at the core of this problem is the fact that we have millions of people, longtime residents of Chicago and many other cities across the nation, without the status, without the ability to work uh, legally in the U.S. And that is a situation that is taken advantage of by employers who just want to squeeze workers even more. This is something that happens constantly, not only in the context of this particular crisis, but it is often the case that people that employers consider are going to be more docile and more willing to work for less get employed. And this is important also to look from the perspective of how we normally debate about immigrants in the U.S. who are here without authorization and working, because we tend to blame them, but we never look at the employers. And the fact is, there is clearly a reason behind why these people are employed the way they are employed. And it is because employers want to do maximum profit, but we never actually look at the employer uh, angle from this, we tend to just blame immigrants. At the end of all, we need to understand that we have a major failure of leadership, just as Murad was pointing a few minutes ago, from the federal to the state to the city-level governments. And it is not a crisis that began over the last couple of years. This is a crisis that has been in many ways brewing 
for decades, we have created the conditions that makes easy at this point in time to blame, to scapegoat newly arrived asylum seekers as if they were the ones that caused the realities that we are seeing. The fact is, we are a society that doesn't really care about people's well-being. And that's what's playing out in the context of people arriving, desperately seeking support and protection. Oscar Chacon, can you talk about um, how both New York and Chicago are dealing with the migrant crisis? Um, and when I say that, I'm not talking about crisis caused by migrants. For example, <laughs> Chicago is suing the bus companies, um, or sh the bus companies are suing Chicago for not letting the buses that uh, these the governors in the South are sending north, and New York uh, is suing the bus companies. Uh, can you, is this a diversion? What do you think needs to happen? Well, I think it's important to understand that in many ways this is a perfect storm, not from the perspective of immigrants causing it, but a perfect storm in the sense that migrants are unveiling a reality that has been put in place, as I mentioned before, over decades. And essentially, we are still failing to really deal with the root causes of the problem. We hardly ever speak. Uh, about the simple question of why are these people coming. I think cities like Chicago and New York, in many ways, not so much in terms of governmental leadership, but in terms of civil society organizations, community-based organizations, really stepping up and trying to help in the best way they can. But the reality is we have a big failure in terms of uh, not counting with the right set of policies in place to be able to be helpful. So bus companies in the end are just trying to make money out of this situation. Uh, I think cities like New York in particular are very easy moving into blaming immigrants as if they were the ones that caused you know, these difficulties. The reality is, again, we have a big crisis in terms of not having been really care about providing people housing uh, conditions that are adequate, that are dignified, not providing people uh, access to health care, including mental health care. And again, migrants are simply making these failures in our society very visible. The easiest thing to do is to blame immigrants, but in reality, it is the compounding effect of decades of neglect when it comes to a public policy that really puts at the center of everything the well-being of populations. And, Oscar, I wanted to ask you, this summer, uh, the Democratic National Convention will be in Chicago. The eyes of the political world will be on this city. Uh, your sense of what uh, immigrant rights groups around the country are preparing for when that convention comes to Chicago? Well, I think that the preparation is hardly happening from the perspective of people being too busy trying to deal with the immediate realities of what people often see as a crisis, which I completely disagree it is. Uh, but the bottom line is it's important to understand the reason why Chicago will probably become increasingly important in terms of Republican uh, governor such as Abbott in Texas sending more people into Chicago is precisely because the goal 
of these people are to create more chaos, to create more divisions, and to use this, this context of conflict and, and difficulties as a backdrop to the uh, Democratic Party convention coming up in Chicago. In the end, it is important to highlight uh, people that are motivated by white supremacy, by xenophobia, are basically trying to use migrants as a way of, again, expanding the perception of a crisis and using it electorally to try to minimize the chances of Democrats succeeding in keeping the White House in their hands coming next year. And finally, Murad, you're in Albany. Uh, that's where the New York State governor sits, um, where the um, legislature is, talking about what you feel could be the single most important way um, in Washington, the Democrats and Republicans, from Biden to Trump um, before him. Uh, can you evaluate what they've done and what they need to do? Well, on immigration reform and real immigration reform that's going to help people, historic immigrants as well as newcomers, making sure that people have a pathway to legalization, but also making sure that our processes to come into the United States are significantly uh, more equitable, humane and uh, efficient. That's the piece that we're missing here in, in this moment. Um, and it, as we're speaking right now, the Senate and President Biden have been negotiating a border deal in exchange for, uh, you know, Ukraine military aid and our communities being held hostage by the most extremist uh, congressional class we've ever had in this moment where the Biden administration is ready to give up our community's rights uh, to continue to uh, support foreign aid. And if he wants to do that, by all means, do that, but separate these issues from each other. Um, and we're looking at potentially losing immigrant rights in this country and also the president losing executive order on humanitarian parole and other powers that he can help, as he has done in the past, when we have situations like when Afghanistan fell, when Ukrainians were coming into the United States, he uses executive authority to actually provide humanitarian parole. He hasn't done it very expansively as he has um, in other areas. But what we do know is when you create more legal pathways for people to come into the United States, they use them. Um, and we currently just don't have those systems in place right now. And what instead of actually being solutions oriented from President Biden down to Congress, they're just looking to have a scapegoat in this moment, as my brother um, Oscar mentioned. And this is not our community should not be the issue. They're trying to find a different villain in this in this story. And they are the villains because they have not addressed the concerns of Americans and all who call the U.S. home um, for the past couple of decades. And instead of actually resolving the issues people have been facing, they continue to look for other ways to lash out and look for someone to say this is their reason. It's their fault. We are in this place, but it's not. They are the ones in power. They have the tools and the power to deliver the solutions we all need. Murata Waldo, I want to thank you so much for being with us, Executive Director of the New York Immigration Coalition, and Oscar Chacon, Executive Director of Alianza Americas. Next up, the acclaimed Chinese artist Ai Weiwei joins us after his exhibit was canceled in London when he criticized Israel's assault on Gaza. He also has a new graphic novel. Stay with us. The mayor's a cop. 
The blues quadrupled up, the block is high. This how they chose to use the guap with this amount of human lords. Could have been for schools of parks, coats in the winter, in the summer, something to cool them off. Food the warmth, cause once the leaves on the trees start falling off, people gonna need heat to keep their ears from falling off. Temperature dropped and back up to the top from the deepest BK block. Back up to the Bronx, what you wanna Mayor's a Cop by Mike and Wiki. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to the acclaimed Chinese artist and activist Ai Weiwei. In November, he had an exhibit in London canceled after he wrote a social media post where he criticized the United States for its longtime financial support of Israel. Ai Weiwei has previously expressed support for Palestinians. He made a 2016 documentary that includes Gaza in the global refugee crisis called Human Flow. Ai Weiwei is one of the world's most acclaimed artists. In 2011, he was arrested at the Beijing airport, held for 81 days without charge. He's been living in exile since 2015. He's joining us here in New York City ahead of his event tonight at Town Hall that's part of PEN America's PEN Out Loud series, when he'll discuss his new graphic memoir, Zodiac. Ai Weiwei, welcome back to Democracy Now! Let's start with that canceled London exhibit. What happened? Well, and after I post, uh, uh, you know, a, a single line on Twitter, you know, I, I never noticed uh, people really uh, become so uh, sensitive or so crazy about my post. Uh, basically, post that described the situation about Israelis' uh, uh, relations with the U.S. and which is uh, very, uh, very. Uh, you know, it's very subjective. It's 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 not uh, it's not from my point of view, but it's really a general facts. So then the you know the gallery, uh, actually not one gallery, but uh, galleries in Paris and in London, uh, they get very worried, and uh, I still don't know exactly the reason uh, why they have to worry about uh, artists. Uh, uh, a single line, you know, uh, but uh, rather they says they want uh, avoid this kind of argument and they're trying to protect my interests. So they postponed my uh, shows, not one, but uh, altogether four shows. So <laughs> I guess that proved what I'm saying in, on Twitter is uh, is uh, is correct uh, because there's uh, all. All, all, all over the world, uh, you know, there's a strong censorship about different voices uh, towards this kind of conflicts, and the conflicts continues getting so massive, and also seems uh, it's not going to stop. So by doing that, uh, yes, I many of my shows being cancelled. So. Were you surprised uh, by the uh, the the reaction, uh, given that you've been uh, uh, not only are you one of the most celebrated uh, uh, artists uh, in, from China in the West, but also uh, you've been a, a vocal supporter of the Palestinians for years? I I, I am surprised. I think we are uh, should live in a, a more free society. And uh, who, uh, which can allow the different uh, opinions uh, and the voice, 
and and but、uh, to have this kind of devastating、uh, case to in dealing with、uh, art community, not only art community but、uh, also films or literature, I think it is、uh, it shows a, a, a really very bad、uh, in the backwards、uh, in terms of.、Uh, Freedom of expression, human rights, and、uh, you know all those issues.、Um, you know there are not many Chinese artists as celebrated and embraced by the West as you are, Ai Weiwei. Were you surprised by the swift retaliation um, against um, your position, which is really critiquing the West、uh, in London, Britain, and the U.S. when it comes to supporting the Israeli government when it comes to the assault on Gaza?、Um, I think、uh, maybe I was celebrated for wrong reason. <laughs> and uh, but uh, still, uh, as an artist, I'm、uh, I have to de-、uh, you know fight for the human dignity and、uh, also basic human rights,、uh, freedom of speech, and、uh, that's why I'm here. So, can I ask you about your graphic novel, Ai Weiwei? Talk about Zodiac and the message you're conveying in this graphic memoir. Well,、uh, thanks for asking that. I, I、uh, come to New York to to be part of this uh, graphic novel. Um, uh, how do you say the promotion? And、uh, the novel is、uh, take、uh, us about、uh, two three years、uh, with two uh, other uh, person uh, involved. And、uh, so we made the, the drawing and the storyline, and、uh, you know it's it's very、uh, I think it's pretty unique and、uh, and also charming in telling my personal stories in relate to uh, Chinese uh, classic uh, stories, but also in relating to current event, both in. China and in the West, so it's a、uh, it's very detailed, uh, uh, and, and you know very visual narratives about uh, uh, the stories. Ai Weiwei,、um, your message to the world right now: you are a dissident when it comes to China. You cannot live inside China. You're in exile. And now,、uh, when you come and are embraced by the West, you find yourself cancelled again and again.、Um, your thoughts? Well, I think we are living in a very crucial time、uh, globally. We we have to rethink about our values or what we are really defending for. It's not only a challenge for individual artists, but also for the state. And、uh, we are gradually uh, uh, losing the ground of uh, uh, democracy or personal freedom, or even、uh, we are still in、uh, facing a, a crisis, a economic crisis, immigration、uh, crisis. Also, we are possibly at the edge of the World War Three. You know, this is not an exaggeration. It can happen, and、uh, I, I'm afraid this is、uh, the facts. But、uh, that would uh, uh, calling for every individual to to defend the humanity and the human rights. 
I want to thank you so much for being with us. Ai Weiwei, world-renowned Chinese artist and activist, has a new graphic memoir called Zodiac. He'll be speaking tonight at Town Hall in New York. Next up, it's primary day in New Hampshire. As Donald Trump and Nikki Haley square off in the Republican race, we'll speak to a Democratic presidential candidate, Marianne Williamson, about her campaign against President Biden. Her name is on today's ballot in New Hampshire, though Biden's is not. Back in 20 seconds. Woman by Angel Olson. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Voting's begun in New Hampshire in the nation's first primary. On the Republican side, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley's hoping to pull off an upset over former President Donald Trump, who won last week's caucus in Iowa by a record margin. On the Democratic side, there is a primary today in New Hampshire, but it's received little attention, in part because President Joe Biden's name will not be on the ballot, though supporters are organizing an unofficial write-in campaign. The Democratic National Committee stripped New Hampshire of its delegates after it refused to move its primary until after South Carolina. Historically, Iowa and New Hampshire have held the first contests, giving two of the whitest states in the nation considerable clout in the nominating process. In 2022, the DNC voted to hold the first primary in South Carolina, which has a significant population of color. Iowa agreed to the changes. The Democratic Iowa caucus will take place later. But New Hampshire did not and went ahead anyway with the primary of the Democratic Party, as well as the Republicans. Over two dozen other candidates will be on the Democratic ballot in New Hampshire, most prominently Congressmember Dean Phillips of Minnesota and our next guest, Marianne Williams a best-selling author, self-described spiritual thought leader who also ran for president in 2020. Williamson has campaigned for a single-payer health care system, cutting the Pentagon's budget, creating a U.S. Department of Peace, and boldly addressing the climate crisis. She's also supported a ceasefire in Gaza. Marianne Williamson is joining us now from Manchester, New Hampshire. Marianne Williamson, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you talk about the fact that you are the only person on the Democratic ticket right now of the major Democratic candidates who is supporting a Gaza ceasefire, and then go into your call for a Department of Peace? The ceasefire, even before the invasion of uh, Gaza uh, by the Israelis, I was on a video saying I thought it was a bad idea. And I have been calling for a ceasefire since the moment it began. You know, obviously, there's a big difference between supporting Israel and supporting the Israeli government. There's a big difference between supporting Israel and supporting the policies of Benjamin Netanyahu. And uh, I've been very sorry to see the U.S. government go along with his policy uh, and this war. I think it's a terrible idea. It's terrible for Israel, obviously terrible for the Palestinians, for the region, and I think for the world. 
In terms of the Department of Peace, you know, uh, Franklin Roosevelt said we need to do more than end wars. We need to end the beginnings of all wars. Uh, just like with health and sickness, you, you don't just treat sickness, you learn to cultivate health. And we need to not just, you know, drop bombs and uh, put people in prison when there is conflict. We need to learn to prevent conflict. We need to learn to proactively create peace. And there are four there are four main factors involved in what's called peace building. And when these, these factors are present, statistically, that means there's going to be a higher incidence of peace and a lower incidence of conflict. And this is true whether it's a corner of an American city or another place in the world. And those factors are greater economic opportunities for women, greater educational opportunities for children, a reduction of violence against women, and an amelioration of unnecessary human despair. So just like they play war games, we need to play peace games. Just like we have a military academy, we need to have a peace academy. Just like we have an army of military personnel, we need armies of peace builders. And we need to have that uh, same kind of serious focus uh, and resources placed in creating peace that we now have on fighting wars. This forever war machine that the United States has is a path to disaster in this century. And Marion Williamson, can you talk about your decision to run as a Democrat rather than as an independent, given how much you diverge in many of your positions from the, uh, I guess, the Democratic Party elite? Well, that's the point. I, I don't diverge from the traditional values of the Democratic Party. They do. I'm a Roosevelt Democrat. I believe that the policies of the U.S. government should be used to help people. Now, that Democratic establishment elite that you just referred to, look at someone like myself or any progressive as though we are trying to hijack the party. In fact, they hijacked the party. We're Franklin and Eleanor, and they're the DuPonts and the Whitneys and the Morgans. They're a bunch of economic royalists. You know, that, econo that uh, Democratic elite that you're talking about in the Democratic Party, when I was growing up, they would have been called Republicans. So I'm where, in, you know, in my youth and in my growing up, and uh, just sort of my perspective, I'm where the center of the Democratic Party should and would have been had it not been for this profound influx of corporate money that has infused both parties. And you often invoke the idea of traditional values in your speeches. Uh, uh, could you talk a little bit more about what you mean by those traditional values? Well, I think that there's common sense involved in our trying to be better people. I think no matter whether someone is approaching this from a religious perspective or a secular perspective, we all know that if you try to be a person of integrity, of generosity, of forgiveness, owning your own mistakes, forgiving other people for theirs, your life works better. And I think that those same values and those same considerations, those same reflections on what it means to be good should apply to public policy as much as it applies to our personal behavior. Our public policy is guided by an essentially bankrupt on a moral level economic paradigm. There's no sense of, of, of ethics. There's no sense of owing anything to anyone. It's all fiduciary responsibility to the stockholder. And that has been going on for 50 years now. And it has devastated this country. It has it has completely hollowed out our middle class. It has led to a $50 trillion transfer of wealth from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. If all you care about is stockholder value, at the expense of every other stakeholder's interest, at the expense of the workers, uh, at the expense of the community, at the expense of the environment. 
What happens? What happens is what has happened to this country, where a majority of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. A majority of Americans cannot absorb a $500 unexpected expenditure. And now 39% of Americans claim that they regularly skip meals in order to pay their rent. This is intolerable. It is unacceptable. And we need a president who will say so. I wanted to talk about you being on the Democratic primary ballot. Um, at a presidential forum you were at, I, that I co-moderated in South Carolina in 2019, I, <laughs> I questioned then-Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren during that forum at South Carolina State about the primary calendar. Senator Warren, just a 30 seconds left. But speaking about racial injustice, do you think the order of the primary state should change? You have Iowa and New Hampshire. Wait, let, they, me, make, let me just, before you finish, are you actually going to ask me to sit here and criticize Iowa and New Hampshire? <laughs> no, I'm asking about the order. No, that is what Iowa and New Hampshire But let me just about. ask, they're two of the whitest states in the country. And then we moved to South Carolina with a, um, a very significant... Uh, population of people of color. And it means the candidates spend so much of their time catering to those first two states. Overall, do you think that should change? Look, I'm just a player in the game on this one. And I am delighted to be in South Carolina. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You, That was Massachusetts Senator and then presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren. If you could respond to that question, Marianne Williamson, I mean, the reason the DNC, they weren't canceling the New Hampshire primary. They just said Iowa and New Hampshire should come after later, especially South Carolina, which has a larger uh, community of color. Uh, talk about your decision to be on the New Hampshire ballot. Well, if the DNC was honestly, authentically and sincerely coming up from a place of concern about racial diversity, that would be one thing. I don't think that's what happened here. And I don't even think I don't know anyone in, New, in South Carolina who really thinks that's what happened here. What happened here is that Joe Biden came in fourth place or fifth place last time and they wanted to avoid an embarrassment. Uh, obviously, racial diversity matters. But let me tell you what else matters, and that is economic diversity. And when you want to talk about the actual experience of the average American, the working, uh, the working class Americans in, in the United States, uh, New Hampshire is as much a ground zero as is any other state. Uh, I don't think that any of us should be thinking in terms of playing favorites with the states. And um, I'm just showing up where there are people. Uh, New Hampshire responded to uh, the DNC by saying, no, our state constitution says we're having a, a primary. And that's just the way it is. And so I'm here because they're having a primary. And I'm taking my cue from the people and not from the DNC. And Marion Williamson, I wanted to ask you about your position on the, uh, supporting the ceasefire in Gaza. You've, you've supported that since October. Do you think that the failure of the Democratic Party leadership and President Biden uh, to take a, uh, a, a, a clear stand uh, in defense of the Palestinian people is going to result in large numbers of young people, especially turning away from this election? I think it's a risk unless we nominate someone like myself, who's been very clear about all this from the beginning. You know, the president showed great moral clarity on October 7th.
but he needs to show the same moral clarity regarding what has happened to the Palestinians. And uh, yeah, I think young people particularly uh, see a deep injustice there. And uh, yeah, I think that's a good reason for the Democrats to nominate somebody who represents a stand for uh, not just greater justice for the Palestinians, but for bold American leadership uh, to make sure that we are robustly and equally committed to this peace, safety, security and sovereignty of both peoples, both Israeli and Palestinian. Can you talk about the New Hampshire's vote ceasefire campaign? Uh, even though President Biden isn't on the ballot, there is a write-in campaign for him. But there's also a write-in campaign to just say ceasefire. Your thoughts on this, Marianne Williamson? Well, I believe that if we're really concerned about the citizens of Gaza, if we're most deeply concerned about what action would most get uh, Joe Biden's attention and make him actually reconsider uh, his policies. I think it would be voting for a candidate who actually uh, stands for a ceasefire. I would think that my getting a lot of votes, given the fact that I, in fact, do stand for a ceasefire, would get more of a raised eyebrow from the president than would a writing campaign for ceasefire. But like in all of these things, the average, not the average, the, the, the citizen, the voter, uh, gets to make their decision for themselves. I hope that people who are considering uh, writing in ceasefire from that position, which I know is a sincere desire to help the people of Gaza, I hope they will consider uh, the possibility, which I believe is the reality, that a vote for me would be a stronger statement. Let me ask you about what happened at Davos. The government corporate elite there uh, seem to say that they think that President Trump is going to win uh, this next election. Um, when the stakes are this high, um, the two main contenders, Biden versus Trump, of course, always thrown around in the United States for any third party or another Democratic presidential candidate like yourself, is you could be the spoiler in this high stakes election. Your response to that? Well, first of all, it's important to remember that this today is a primary. You cannot be a spoiler in a primary. In terms of the general election, I, th I think uh, all of us who are committed to Donald Trump not returning to the White House have a lot to think about there. I would never do anything that I felt would increase the possibility of Donald Trump returning to the presidency. We have less than a minute uh, left, but I wanted to ask you about immigration, which has become a major, major issue uh, once again uh, in this uh, presidential race. Your your stance on the whole issue of sealing the border and reducing uh, uh, undocumented migration into the country and and uh, and limiting the number of asylum seekers. Asylum, to me, is a sacrosanct principle. Obviously, Congress has failed us. Obviously, on the level of the symptom, we simply need greater infrastructure. We need more judges. We need more interviewers. We need more people who can establish credible fear, move people on in the process of integrating into American uh, society. If they do uh, meet that standard, uh, others need to go back to their homes, uh, to their home countries and begin the process legally from there. However, in this issue, as in so many others, my candidacy represents an intention to look at root cause and not just symptom. We need to ask ourselves, why do so many people feel such a desperate need to make their way to the United States, from Latin America particularly? And if we look at that, we see America's 
uh, fingerprints in far too many ways. I want to help the American people wisely and compassionately look in the mirror. If you look at the ways that our own foreign policy over the last 40, 50, 60 years have contributed to the economic destabilization of so many of these countries, I want to see the United States help restabilize what we in too many ways help destabilize. That will include removing the sanctions on Venezuela, removing the sanctions on Cuba, removing Cuba from the terrorist list, obviously, as well. We and have to leave it to there. That, we should be giving far more aid. Thank you. Marion Williamson, 2024 Democratic presidential candidate on the ballot in New Hampshire. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.